This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I am delighted to welcome Juliet Funt to the show. Juliet, welcome. You're going to be talking about- Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so excited. I have your book in my hand, and I'm really excited to talk about it. You're going to be talking about creating space in life to reclaim creativity to do your best work. So let's get started. I'd love for you to take me back. What inspired you to write this book? Mm. So the the there's basically two decades that led up to this book. The first decade was a ten years of speaking and consulting with busy people everywhere, and the second year ten was a training, becoming a training company to help them. And so I have been in the trenches with thousands and thousands of busy people, and I have watched how unnecessary work and frantic busyness has created this. Uh, this tolerated misery that is just how we accept work. And it's often the hardest part of people's lives. It it affects their ability to be present with loved ones, to live longer, to access meaning, and work shouldn't feel that way. And I waited a long time to write this book because I wanted to get every single one of the ideas into it distilled down at like a child coming of age. There was this moment where the observation had kind of crested into content that was proven and clear and had a path. And then I felt, okay, now I think I'm ready to write a guide to help people get from there to here and to really exit this paradigm that we tolerate at work. You know, in your, in your bio, I, I, this, this particular description really hit home. You're a warrior in the battle (laughs) against busyness. And, you know, it it made me smile and I'm grateful for this work because so Mm -hmm. much of what you write really resonates. We're relentlessly behind the curve, dousing fires, and often insomnia provides the only unscheduled think time of the day. And how how sad is that? So let's start to chip away at that. Please go ahead. And it's it's good to start with with images of people because my you asked me what motivates me. My inspiration is how moved I am by people, not the paradigm, but the people. So in the book, there's a woman named Mindy. She worked so hard as a salesperson that she got a promotion. And that promotion in her work became a demotion in her life because she was already busy. Then she became beyond whatever is beyond busy. And she began to work with a jar of peanut butter on her desk at all times because she just decided that lunch was a frivolity and she wasn't taking it anymore. And and th- then those pressures began to evidence in client-facing mistakes and tensions in her team, in her own health, getting chronic headaches. Um, these stories, it's the people sitting in desks or home desks everywhere rallying themselves in the morning to try to do something good and then being crushed by an avalanche of unnecessary work, uh, halluc- what we call hallucinated urgency. And it, and it's really moving, but I also identify with them because I am by nature, uh, you'll notice that experts always teach the thing that they most need to hear. So I am by nature a fast-paced, workaholic type very tech addicted if I've let myself go there. 
And so I need this every day. It's almost as if I was not carrying, if I was not carrying my own book in my purse, I, I would fall back into these behaviors myself. And so I think it's a combination of the empathy and the connection, the identification that I feel that just keeps me in the trenches with, I want to wake up every day and think about the people like Mindy people who cancel vacation, people who are pushing a swing in the park while they're emailing with the other hand. These are the people that need a change now. You know, thank you for being vulnerable. That means a lot. And I, I'm grateful that you're sharing, look, you're a work in progress. It's not as if you you fix this, right? It's a constant practice that you get better and better at. So I'm, yep. I'm grateful for that. What I love about the book, just as you mentioned, Mindy's story, you have many memorable stories that you share and you've got tools and razor sharp instruction and action steps to help us figure this out. So let, let's dive in. Uh, tell us more about how we can regain control of that overload. And you talk a lot about how, look, caffeine is literally sustaining so many of us. So mm-hmm. how do we start? Because it's, it's epic and it can be overwhelming. It can really be overwhelming. So let's start with the foundational metaphor of the book, which is making a fire. And the idea is that if you made a fire, which I will tell you, I don't come naturally to. I grew up in Manhattan. You don't learn how to make a fire in, if you grow up in Manhattan, but you, uh, you can learn. And someone taught me, and what they taught me was that the ingredients of the fire are critical to consider. You should have dry pine needles, maybe newspaper, perhaps you use a little bit of that chemical fire starter, or, uh, and, or you want two types of wood. It's good to have soft wood because that will catch quickly in the beginning. And then it's good to have hard wood because that will burn long. And if you layer that, you'll build a perfect fire. But if you forget one critical ingredient in that fire, it will never ever ignite. And that ingredient is space. It's the space in between all those combustible things that makes a fire ignite. And we are the same. Every day we wake up with a little spark. It's our beautiful attempt at hope and contribution. And if we don't have space, if we don't have time to think, breathe, step back, create, ponder, follow an idea, we cannot ignite the spark within us. And that's the foundational metaphor of all of the work is to teach people to create that space. Has the lack of space been exacerbated by the pandemic journey? That is a fascinating question because some people say they have a little more space, but most people that I talk to have used work as an anxiety soother. They, there is so much free-floating anxiety and fear, and we've all finished Netflix at this point, so that work becomes entertainment. It becomes something you can control. It becomes manageable. And so we go deeper and deeper into it, not to mention that the Zoom calls from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. have now become some sort of horrible new norm, a norm, by the way, that we're going to have to work very hard to unwrite. When we get our commutes back, people will be expected to be on calls in the car, on calls before the car, because we, we've now solidified that. And so in a lot of ways, a combination of fear and frenzy and loneliness and not knowing how to work, I think has made it worse. The data shows that emails are up 40 billion messages a month since the pandemic and meetings have more than doubled. So if you look at Microsoft Teams data, that is what we're seeing in terms of what the numbers say. Wow. That that just blew my hair back. Oh my yeah. goodness. So 
Let's toggle to teams because you write about how Mm. you can liberate yourself and your teams from burnout and busy work. And I know so many leaders listening are saying, okay, intellectually, I get this message. How do I convince my teams? Get some more white space. Give yourself that permission. It's interesting that you went from that direction because I ha- an evolved leader who craves space with a population who doesn't want to take it is not usually the direction that I hear that question. The direction I usually hear that question is in the reverse. We, as the employees, are dying for space and our leaders who get it as part of being leaders, they get their own space in a different way and so they don't understand. And this happens a lot where leaders take thinking time for granted They assume, many of them, first of all, come from a generation where if you saw your boss staring out a window, you knew, oh, that's the golden hour where he's, she's cooking up the future of the company and you would sneak backward not to disturb thinking. And that is no longer true, but many leaders still relate to thinking time that way. So let's do it from both angles because you're talking about what happens from the leader side and from the team side. This work is intensely, intensely communal. And not to make a book plug, but if you get together with other people and read the book and discuss it, one of the things that, and we have a book club guide that we can give people to help them, but one of the things that's the most important about that process is it allows you to question what's current and it allows you to vision what's possible and then together try to find a path from one to the next. Try to figure out what's going to stand in our way of making space. What are the organizational norms? What are the leadership behaviors? What are the cultural elements? It's very hard to do that by yourself in a large organization. So the more people you get on your make space squad, the better. From a leadership perspective, if in fact the leader is listening, Go find out what makes work miserable for people and ask them earnestly and honestly and find out about their pain because you may be sitting above it and you honestly just might not know how it feels to be someone who's been working for a year and a half with three children trying to Zoom school in the same living room that you're trying to close a million dollar deal. It's just, it's been insane. And so I think that's really important for leaders to to ask it. And the most heart-centered leaders are asking. They're asking and they're observing and they're trying. Juliet, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, If you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. I loved how you said heart-centered leaders. That really Mm. uh, resonated with me. The title of your book, uh, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and do your best work. What stood out to me there was reclaim your creativity. Mm. For me, during the pandemic, uh, I had a creativity drought. And that's why Mm. your book uh, is so meaningful to me. Tell our audience how we can reclaim creativity and what that means. And and I'll just share with you, I became numb and almost anesthetized from back-to-back Zoom meetings. It it became normalized. This was what we did. And we worked longer hours, as you mentioned, the email, 
just became exponentially larger. And, and I lost that space to be creative and to think. Yes, and that's that's partly related to the scheduledness of a virtual workflow. There is no incidental, accidental in the hallway walking through, so we just fill and fill and fill. But in order to understand the creative um, kind of target of this work, you have to meet John, who is in the book. John is a security guard at a Fortune 200 company, and this company happens to have a very high focus on patents. They like to get a lot of patents for their innovations. Now, it happens that there's an innovation department, but it is actually John sitting in his in front of his surveillance monitors that holds the record for the most patents in this company. Now, he's a very smart person, super brilliant, unique guy, but we discussed that a, a, por- a portion of that victory comes from the fact that his job is 95% waiting for something to happen and 5% stuff he has to do on paper. And in that space, his mind is free and it creates. And here's the punchline of the story is two times he was promoted because people obviously notice these patents and he was promoted into innovation from security. And two times now he's gone back to security because when he went into innovation, they assigned him all this work that actually kept him from being creative because he didn't have the space to do it. So creativity in a lot of senses is like getting water to run downhill. You just have to get stuff out of the way and there's a natural process that then will occur. So if you can block time that is open uh, and you have a creative spark within you, that spark will ignite. I love that story. Love that story. Juliet, you have this incredible resource called the busyness test on your website, julietfunt.com. Tell us about Thank that. Thank you. This work has to get personal. So we have to, it's so easy to go theoretically, yep, people are too busy and there's millions of dollars of corporate waste and it's tragedy about the Zoom lifestyle. And But it has to start becoming about you. You personally have to say, how is this affecting me? Life is going by and how do I want it to be different? So the busyness test is a mirror to have you understand, okay, where are you finding the most problems in your busyness, which unique frailties and triggers are leading you to a life that's less than optimized at work, and how you can, most importantly, how you can create space for creativity and rest. Love it. So what about taming that beast of email? You know, when you mentioned that mm. Microsoft stat, it, it's it's staggering. And, and so many of us are shaking our heads saying, yeah, how do you, how do you even think about escaping the mire of back-to-back meetings? So email and meetings, we could certainly do way more than 10 minutes. So I'll give you one favorite in each category, because that's probably what we have time for. A lot of the focus on meetings uh, has to do with that there should be less of them. But in this particular environment, although I definitely believe that, and there are many ways in the book to create less meetings on your calendar, I think the way that they are showing up on the calendar is the most emergent problem. And we have a rule in white space. uh, That's our, actually, we didn't even define white space. White space is that space. We call it white because it's looking at paper calendars in the old days when I was coaching executives. If you saw white spaces on the calendar, you knew that there would be time for recovery and improvisation and thoughtfulness because there was actually white. So the space we're discussing, we formally call it white space. One of the most important places for it to occur is in stripes in between your meetings. The rule in our world is never let the colors touch. 
If you imagine your calendar, which is certainly digital at this point for most of you, you will have colored blocks and they probably look like a thick stack of color with no white in between. But if you start adding stripes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes in between those meetings, it will be the beginning of the oxygenation that you so crave. And there are many benefits to that. First of all, it allows us to, we have to eradicate the shame of rest at work. We need to rest. We need to, uh, when, when it's been a lot, then we need to think about what did we just do? Maybe digest the meeting, maybe enter our notes from paper to digital. Then we need to think about what's coming. Who am I about to talk to and what do they need and how can I show up best for them? And all of that critical positioning happens in a white stripe. One of the other things that a white stripe does, and I love this, is it gets uh, us out of one of the worst things about back-to-back meetings, which is the hard out. And this is a con- came from a conversation with a client who says he just hates that minute where you're in something juicy and someone says, I have a hard out. And they just abandon you in the middle of a thought or a connection or a stream of, of some pr- productive uh, thread. So this process of never let the colors touch is really a baby step that people can take to begin to sanify their meeting calendar. I love it. And as a fellow coach, uh, I can hear so many of my clients saying, but I'm booked for the next two months. And I'll tell you what I would say. You you tell me if we're in sync here. I would say, okay, then, then go two months beyond that and at least start to make uh, that room for the future that is not yet booked because we've got to be proactive. We can't always rely on this is the way I've always done it. There is. I'd playful. If you and I were tag team coaching somebody, I would probably playfully throw in that being caught as an overpromiser is better than drowning in meetings for two months. So if you have to do the embarrassing task of going through a bunch of stuff that you shouldn't have scheduled in the first place and cutting a third of it and disappointing a few people, that may be what you need to do to survive the next two months. I think that I agree that the golden clean calendar that's coming three months down the line is very attractive to do better. But I also think cut some, exit them, cancel them, reduce them in scope. People will be happy that you have taken a, a meeting many times off their calendar. Many times it'll be a good thing. Thank you for giving everybody and me permission to do that. I'm really grateful. That was fantastic. And then let's do email because you asked. So email obviously is a six-hour workshop we could do together. So we'll just pick one thing, which is CCs. CCs are the most uh, aggressively returning problem. It's fascinating to see how many people can take a class on email, read a book on email, be told by supervisors we should reduce CCs. And then there's this mindless trance when we're filling that CC line and we just still put everyone in it. I think the the permanence of that habit is just fascinating to me. So here's the technique that we advocate. Try this. Think about the acronym WAIT. W-A-I-T is whose action is this? 90% of the time, you should be on an email if you have an action on the thread, not if you are observing the thread like you're sitting in one of those operating room, display rooms in the glass walled observation area above a surgical operation and you're just looking down on the operation, you should be there if you have an action. So what I advocate and what works wonderfully for people is put the CCs in the way you normally would and then just stop and ask yourself, wait, wait, whose action is this? You'll usually remove 
at least two, three, four people out of the CC line, and then use these other two practices to support that. Number one, you have to learn how to say kindly over and over, please take me off this thread, please take me off this thread, please take me off this thread. That's very important. And you should have one folder where everything that is a CC is trained to go into that folder as a rule in your email, and you only check that folder once a day. If you do those three things, you will see a dramatic drop in cumulative email, especially if you work in a larger company. Juliet, I love that. Practical, actionable wisdom. Thank you so much. I learned... I took copious notes. I learned so much. I know our our global listeners did as well. I want to remind everybody about your book. It's called A Minute to Think. Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work by Juliet Funt. Juliet, I wish you continued success, and I'm, I'm truly grateful for your time and wisdom and expertise today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.